Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Cameron Munter, was the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan when U.S. special forces conducted the midnight raid that killed Osama bin Laden. He watched the raid live and hours later was dealing with a diplomatic fallout. My job was to talk with the Pakistani officials. And um, even though many people find this hard to believe, I to this day don't believe that the Pakistanis knew that bin Laden was there. Munter has had a career in both academia and the diplomatic corps, serving in a wide variety of posts, many of which we discuss. He's now the president of the East-West Institute, and I must say that this is arguably the first podcast ever in the history of the universe in which both Otto von Bismarck and Lou Reed are each discussed. But I definitely don't want to spoil those stories, so listen on. We kick off with a brief discussion of the ways that Chinese domestic politics influence its foreign policy and what the future holds for U.S.-Chinese relations in the era of Trump. And then, of course, as we always do, we pivot to a longer conversation about his life and career with some fun digressions along the way, and in this case, very fun. As always, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. This is a great episode that is a excellent distillation of what this podcast is all about. Hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out the archives or get in touch with me. And as regular listeners know, I really do love hearing from you guys. I love hearing your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And if you are so inspired this holiday season, Uh, feel free to make a recurring contribution to the podcast to keep it going strong into the new year. And now here is Ambassador Cameron Munter, president of the East-West Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I think it's a very wise way to look at it, and I'm not just saying that to, to flatter you. I mean, it's a wise way to look at Chinese foreign policy as the result of very careful study of Chinese domestic policy. Uh, the main thing that the Chinese leaders always mention to us, we at the East-West Institute have a number of exchanges with them, party-to-party talks, military-to-military talks, expert talks. When we talk with their foreign policy and security people, They're always very careful to talk about the uh, domestic origins of of their decisions. And they're always puzzled, I think, when American foreign policy experts look at something like radars being deployed in uh, South Korea or the South China Sea or these other kind of traditional security issues outside of the context of what's happening inside China. So that preface is, I think you're onto the right track. 
the main things that I think are going on in the minds of a lot of the leaders there and, the, and are reflected in the talks that we have is that there are two dates coming up that they're looking for. Uh, the one date is the uh, 100th anniversary of the formation of the Chinese Communist Party in 2021. And the other is the 100th anniversary of the formation of the communist state in 2049. And what they're doing is talking about processes by which China will be able to measure its own strength and to compete on the world stage. Amazingly, to some Americans and to some other Westerners, uh, China is always calling itself a developing country. It's always calling itself a country that's working on catching up and always trips over itself uh, to try to say we're not uh, trying to compete or displace America because we know America is much more powerful than us. The implication being maybe at some later date we'll be more powerful, but uh, right now we're not. And the way that they measure that power is in their economic performance and the satisfaction that it gives them and the legitimacy that it gives the Communist Party among those people in China who, because they don't have a chance to vote, you know, are being measured uh, in their satisfaction in the kind of the, um, the way they vote with their feet or the way they act to support uh, the party and where it's going. So when you look at the problems they have, the problems they worry about, there are problems about structural change in the economy mm -hmm. that is the main kind of stress, I think, that you get from someone like uh, President Xi talking about getting away from what has been the successful program of economic development, of going into lower end uh, manufacturing and making it uh, more, um, as lower end manufacturing disappears from China and goes to Malaysia and goes to Bangladesh, and goes to other countries, that they train people and many, many, many people yeah. uh, to adjust to a higher end, higher value added economy. And the measurement of how they do that, and they have various matrices that they follow, various kind of benchmarks, is going to be what makes them either confident that they're on the right road or worried that they're not going to make it and there might be either social tension or other economic problems. And those, and those two key inflection points are 2021 and 2049? In their minds, yeah. And do they expect so, then to be like a developed country by then in their own minds? Yeah, I think the way that, and I, I, I paraphrase this, but the way they put it is by 2049, we will be the equal of everyone else. Now, that doesn't say we will then be the shining uh, city on the hill that everyone else has to follow. But they'll say we will be equal to everyone else. I mean, that, that kind of is at odds with what a lot of other people see when you look at the uh, strength of the Chinese economy. They're already very much the equal of many people in the world. But their way of looking at it, the way they choose to look at it, is to say we have a long way to go in our development, and therefore we don't want to look for problems. And that has been the, the way that, of course, Deng Xiaoping and other people uh, led the country for many years. Now with Xi, there is more of a pride that he is putting, uh, uh, referring to, and many people in the government refer to the legitimacy overseas of standing up for China. I think there's a lot of that going on in the South China Sea debate, um, that they don't want to feel that they somehow back down uh, because they're, they would say, and the people, the people of China wouldn't like us to back down. So and there so are some consequentially, of these elements the, to play. They're, mm -hmm. they're more willing to you know, stick an adversarial relationship with the United States. At the same time, it seems that an American president has come to office who has no qualms um, turning the U.S.-China relationship into something a bit more adversarial as well. 
Yeah, no, so it seems. I think what they are doing is, uh, and, and the, the way that the Chinese diplomats and others who I've worked with have always have always uh, uh, operated is they're being very, very careful. I think that their response to, for example, the phone call with the Taiwanese president has been very uh, careful, very measured, but they're watching very, very closely. And um, they are going, it's going to take a while for them to decide exactly what their response to someone like Trump will be. Uh, they're, they're understanding that he's a very different kind of politician. They're understanding that he has a different kind of constituency, because don't forget, in America, we too have our domestic origins of our foreign policy. And it may be that Trump is talking to his constituents in southwest Ohio or, or in Indiana, rather than the, you know, the people who live in New York City or, or Los Angeles. And so they, too, are trying to understand that. And so I think it's going to. From, take a while for that to sort out. Well, so from from a Chinese perspective, like what is say the the most hawkish or the most adversarial response that they might be contemplating? Well, I think that they would uh, they talk very often about reciprocity, and reciprocity is an interesting word because people refer to it as if it's kind of a black and white automatic thing. You did this to me, I'll do it to you. Um, in many ways, reciprocity is in the eye of the beholder. You can respond to someone when you think someone has taken ground from you. And the reason I mention this is there could be quite a bit of misunderstanding on both sides about how reciprocity works. And this gets to your question of what could the Chinese do in response to the United States if they feel the United States is taking uh, liberties with them as being, being too aggressive. Um, they could respond economically. They could respond in any number of ways uh, in terms of finance, in investment uh, uh, choices about, uh, about how they orient their economy. They could have both short-term and long-term impact. So what, what they, might those be? Can, can you spell those out? No, you could, you could see whether they would, they would uh, 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 treat the investment uh, of American firms in China uh, with open arms, be friendly to foreign investment, or if they feel that they somehow are being discriminated against here, that they could crack down on foreigners coming into their country. We may see it the other way. We might say, why are you not, if you want to invest in the United States, why are you preventing other people from investing in your country? That is to say, they can use regulations, they can use political choices to slow down or to alter the, the trajectory of their economic growth. Um, much more easily as a as a, um, a party state than say the West can. So I think I think the ways the things to look for would be to go and talk to Americans who are investing in China. Do you feel good? Do you feel welcome? Or do you feel that uh, the um, the atmosphere is getting tougher here? That would be one way to find out how things are going. Um, but again, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that they will do X or Y because at this point, it's very clear in my talks with Chinese counterparts, they're being very watchful and very careful and to themselves and to us are saying, we're not looking for a fight at this point. Uh, but yet it seems we might bring the fight to them. It might. And it might see if, if it happens and they see that they will, they will, I'm sure, respond. The only question is whether the response is commensurate with what they see is happening here. Um, and and I, I just can't predict that. Mm -hmm. I just can't predict that. 
I think that one thing that's very important here is that is that uh, I don't know if you saw the Atlantic piece uh, where uh, there was an interview with Henry Kissinger. Um, no, uh, but who, it, who, as it, we're it, speaking, was was just over the weekend in China. Right. And he was, I think, probably giving the similar message, which is they're very much people who are concerned about trends and they're and they want to see a trend in the United States. And one thing that Kissinger mentioned in a very gentle way was it's very difficult to see a trend in a instinctive politician like uh, the president elect. Mm -hmm. That is to say, someone who doesn't have policy papers and he doesn't seem to have overarching plans, but he has an attitude or an approach that is associated with his person. He is trying to say, be very careful with that because that doesn't track mm -hmm. with, with the way the Chinese look for evidence of what's going to happen. And there's, there's great room here for misunderstanding if we're not careful. And that I think will probably be one of the defining features of, of foreign policy over the next, you know, four or eight years, which is how other countries respond to sort of unpredictability in the United States. You know, it used to be that you could expect the United States to conduct itself in a certain way, but now there are really no expectations. And it'll be kind of interesting no, to you, see how countries reorient themselves around that. No, that is right. And I think that, you know, one point is that out of the three, the four main candidates, uh, Hillary Clinton was really the only traditionalist predictable one. I mean, when you look at, say, uh, Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders, as well as Trump, they were appealing to an electorate that doesn't want business as usual. So there's clearly a domestic audience here for not doing things the way we've been doing them, right? But you're right in saying just because the American audience doesn't want to do that, at worst wants to throw a brick through the window, but at best doesn't want to be predictable. It doesn't mean that foreigners are going to be happy about that and different foreign countries are going to respond to this in different ways. And that is going to be, I, w I would predict that is going to be one of the hallmarks of the next, uh, the next years in foreign policy. Um, so I would love to learn more about you and your career. So you are, are someone that I've have been that my audience that you out there listening have, have recommended that I speak to and, and several people have recommended that I speak to you saying that I, I should talk to you about your career in, in academia, in foreign policy. Uh, so, so let's go. So where, where are you from? Where were you born? Now, I was born in the West Coast uh, near San Francisco and uh, grew up in Southern California. At age 18, uh, I went east to school, and I thought I was going to be an academic. I went to Cornell and studied uh, history and European affairs and then got a doctorate from Johns Hopkins uh -huh. down in Baltimore. What, what, was so, your, uh, what was your doctorate in? And my doctorate was in German history, 19th century social economic what history. What made you so interested in that topic, German economic history, to want to get a, a PhD in it? Uh, you know, I wish I had a good answer. It, it, uh, yeah, I can flippantly say seemed like a good idea at the time, but um, it was just something that uh, I, you know, maybe at a certain point when you grow up in California, it's a land without history. I was very drawn to uh, European history. I was very drawn to the, the discipline of history, not so much the things that happened, but the, the, the study of history and uh, learned quite a bit of that from studying in Germany and uh, in Central Europe. So when were you, when were you there? The when, when were you in Germany studying? In the 70s. In the 70s. I studied in Freiburg and in Marburg. Um, and uh, so I ended up getting this doctorate in history. I was teaching at UCLA. Well, hold on. What, and, was, your, what then, was your thesis? What was your PhD thesis? It was uh, the poverty and the response of the welfare state in the 19th century in Germany. And they had much of a welfare state in the 19th century in Germany? Had, sure. I mean, Bismarck, Bismarck began social insurance uh, 50 years 
before America had, you know, so they basically had social security that was put in not by radicals, but by the conservatives in Germany 50 years before America. Did it work? Sure. Still works. I mean, that's why Germany has the social state that it has. Um, but you can argue that there were other different social things going on in Germany under the impact of industrialization that also led to some fairly unhappy history as well. Yes. So uh, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very touchy and, and difficult subject, and I found it really compelling. Fascinating. So, so, uh, so, yeah. so you got your PhD. Were you planning on, on just going into to teaching? Sure. Yeah. And so I was teaching at UCLA and I realized I was going to starve to death or as we used to say in the historical profession, there's no future in the past. Right. Yeah. I was going to starve. So uh, I did what every overeducated, underemployed intellectual does, which is to join that welfare system called the American Diplomatic Service. Huh. So and, that, but that's, uh, you got to be pretty old to be joining the, uh, the diplomatic service. Right. If you've already gotten your PhD. Yeah. No, that's right. Although you'd be surprised, the average age of people coming into the foreign service is over thirty. Really? So there, um, there's like a lot and, of uh, washed up PhDs that are trying right. to start a new career. We don't like to think of it as washed up PhDs. We like to think of it as <laughs> highly educated people out there to serve their country. Absolutely. But the point is that you have a lot of people with work experience who join the foreign service, and the American mm -hmm. diplomatic service has people who've been in business. Uh, when I was serving in Iraq, I remember my my team was made up of, a, of an ex vice president from Fed. Ex, uh, who was a diplomat, you know, so that uh, there's no limit when you join the Foreign Service to how old you, you can be. I think you can be almost 60. So how did you join. make the how do you make that decision of, of all things to do the, the Foreign Service? Um, I was kind of in, impressed by the examination. I'd read about it. I thought this is a great way to live overseas, which I've always loved to do. And I liked the fact that the examination was um, fair. That is, you know, if you're the son of a banker or a senator, you don't get any extra um, um, points. Uh, connections can't get you in. It's all merit. Do you, and, and I, so, I, I ask this to a lot of career foreign service people. Do, do you remember mm -hmm. your, uh, your oral exam? Do I remember it? Sure. Yeah. See, that seems to be like the, the, the big, a big moment in many diplomats lives. So what, what, is there any specific moment of your oral exam that you remember particularly well? Well, I remember being coached that the point of the oral exam is not to win the argument, but to show that you're cool in a situation that's tense Yeah. and uh, being very pleased when everyone else in the oral argument panicked and tried to win. Uh, and I was the only one who was trying to be the conciliator and noting that the experts in the corners were kind of approvingly nodding as they looked at me. Ah, okay. So I, that, that's the thing. That's the one thing I caught on to. So that, you know, the idea being that people who join the diplomatic service are not necessarily the smartest. They're not necessarily the people who know about a specific area, but they're people who have two qualities. One is breadth and curiosity. And the other is um, that they would rather solve problems with their head than in their heart. Mm -hmm. There's a famous phrase that Talleyrand, uh, the French um, uh, foreign minister, said is, above all, no zeal, right? You, you don't solve diplomatic uh, issues by being passionate. Now, you do have to learn how to do a fair amount of acting. There's a lot of kabuki involved, but you don't get mad because you're angry. You get mad for effect. Have, do you have a, a, an example from your career in which you got mad for effect, like a strategic outburst of emotion? Yeah, I mean, probably about every week when I would go into the um, uh, foreign ministry in Pakistan, I would let them know what I thought of the uh, allegations of Pakistani support for terrorists. And I would do it forcefully. 
and I hoped I came across as sincere. Now, after hearing it a number of times, they probably thought, here comes Cameron again to come and whack his fist on the table. But I did it because I wanted to let them know this matters to the United States. But I wasn't going to go in there and rave and chew on the carpet because I was there also to listen to what their response would be and to pay attention and to try to keep a cool head. So where was your first posting? My first posting was to Poland, and uh, Central Europe was a part of the world that I was familiar with, and I'd actually studied some Polish. So I was very pleased to go to Poland, and this was before the fall of the wall. And um, it was one of those things that when you join the Foreign Service, you know, Americans around the world have an ambiguous status. You know, you are seen as the big country, but sometimes as the bully and all that kind of thing. Um, when you go to Poland in the 1980s, you are the good guy. Yeah. Right? The Poles, you know, this was a time of solidarity being underground. This was a time of everyone thinking the United States has it right. Uh, you're dealing with heroic people, these solidarity guys. It well, was, did you ever meet uh, Lech Walesa? Sure. Uh, in, yeah. in, in that time, what was your, what was your like, initial impression or what was the, the context in which you sort of met him for the first time? Well, as a young um, political officer, we would go up to Gdańsk, and what the Polish secret police would want is that one of us would like, you know, misbehave, run a traffic light, get drunk, do something wrong, so you could get in trouble. And so they would only send the young officers up to meet with the solidarity leaders, because if we got tossed out of the country, you know, if you get diplomatic, lose your diplomatic status, you're expendable. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I, which is great. You're the young officer who gets to go meet Lech Wałęsa and Bronislaw uh, Goremek and, and Adam Michnik and all these guys. It was great fun. So we were sent up just to talk with him, find out what the situation was, to brief him on things. And he uh, speaks very, very um, elusive and accented Polish. That's, I'm putting that diplomatically. He's very hard to understand, even for Poles. But uh, it was great fun. And, what made it so you know, fun? Oh, I mean, it was kind of a little bit of cloak and dagger. You know, you're talking to this famous guy and the secret police are not happy that you're there. And, you know, that's fun, you know, mm-hmm. and, you're on the, and you're on the side of right. You stand for decency, solidarity, trade unions, freedom, blah, blah, blah. And so those were a couple of great years. And I left Poland in 1988 and then came back and said, I'm, I'm kind of tired. It's, this is hard work. I'm going to take a job where nothing ever happens. I'm going to be the desk officer for Czechoslovakia. Huh. So uh, then comes 1989, and uh, the um, the wall falls, and uh, you know I spent some time just before the wall fell in Berlin, in uh, in Prague, and I, I was familiar with that part of the world. Those are kind of the background of you know um, the things I'd studied and the languages I spoke and things of that sort. So um, it became, as Havel once put it, like being in a movie that starts going on fast forward. And uh, it was very, very exciting and kept being exciting for years. Was there a, a moment that you recall um, sort of in which you realized that you were very, you know, specifically witnessing history, witnessing sort of a really sort of world changing event, like a, a once in a 70 year sort of event? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was I mean, there's a lot of them, and it, it's very—it's it, a difficult question. I'm not trying to dodge your question, but it's difficult because you're part of a process where many of the things that you're looking at all begin to dislodge. It's like the way a landslide begins, and you see the individual rocks falling out of the mountain, and you know, one by one, and then it becomes something bigger. But one thing I remember was being in Prague at the time when many East Germans were coming into the Czech Republic and then leaving their cars on the street and going and taking refuge in the German embassy in Prague. 
and then what would happen is they all kind of had a huge tent city on the on the um, on the territory of that embassy that the Czechoslovak secret police couldn't enter because it's extraterritorial. And you realize this is simply not sustainable. You're in a part of Prague where there's you know, just little narrow streets jammed with old Trabants and Vartborgs, these old cars, and people with their kids and their backpacks marching up the street to go jump over the fence into the German embassy. And everyone realizing this just something's going to give. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just sort of like, maybe like a little history lesson it w- would be yeah. that, you know, as um, restrictions were loosened in uh, East Germany, um, you had a stream of, of essentially refugees that, that would try to like flow back into Germany via um, the Czechoslovakia, right? Well, well, what it was, was that they weren't being loosened in East Germany. They were being loosened in other countries. Hungary, for example, mm, yeah, opened up its yeah. border to Austria. Um, so people tried to go down to Hungary and they were now being prevented by the Czechoslovak police to get into Hungary so they could get into Vienna. So they were stopped at the border. They were in the Czech Republic. They went to the German embassy, which didn't turn them away. Mm-hmm. And so basically it was just that once the process of opening up began in 1989, it was just impossible to slow everyone down. And um, the people who, as diplomats, we'd been looking at you know, reform communists, people who were kind of going to change the system from within. It's almost like a wave came and swept them away. So then after 19, uh, November 17th, in uh, what well, week after the wall fell in Berlin, uh, it, uh, communism fell in, um, in Czechoslovakia. So I'm in my desk at the State Department, and a guy who I'd been having drinks with a couple of weeks ago who was working as a stoker and a dissident, you know, he was actually shoveling coal into fires, <laughs> he's now the new foreign minister. Huh. So, he, so he calls me up. Because I'm one of the Americans he knows, right? And he says, yeah, I got all these phones on my desk. You know, I, I think this, I'm, I'm glad this one goes to America. I mean, this one might go to Moscow. <laughs> and it was, you know, he was, he was joking about it, but it was actually absolutely ridiculous. You had these people who came into power based on ideals and on their political courage, but who had no background. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating to see who, who rose to the challenge and who didn't. And of course, in the Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia, you had Václav Havel, who was just an extraordinary man who, who did at that time, you know, answer the call. Uh, did, did you, I imagine, uh, had a lot of personal interaction with, with Václav Havel? What were your sort of impressions with him? Do you remember like the first time you met him? Yeah, I remember meeting him in 1989. Uh, you know, he was, he, he's not a charismatic figure. You know, he... Sort of like uh, an introspective, uh, right? Sort of, sort of guy, yeah. sort of character, yeah. Yeah, it's like having, you know, the, 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 you know, the introvert, you know, mm-hmm. become the president, but a very deep introvert, a guy who'd suffered for his, his convictions, who'd been in, in, in prison and things like that, and also had, a, uh, as many Czechs do, a very strong political sense of humor. Um, so what, what were he, some of his jokes? Well, it wasn't so much jokes as situational things. You know, he would, he would, he, you know, he goes to the castle, he becomes the, he becomes the president, and he decided he would try on the... Um, the uniform of the of the honor guard, and so he has a sword over his shoulder and an honor guard suit, and he kind of goes and walks around the castle and talks to the different to the different guards, kind of day to day, but but just kind of being goofy about it. And you didn't know whether to say this guy isn't serious, which some analysts did, or to say he's simply mocking the way things have been in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, there was that. 
that feeling that many of these dissidents had. Um, you know, they didn't want to wear ties. They they wanted to wear blue jeans. You know, they didn't they didn't want to dress up. And uh, you know, they eventually adjusted, but they brought with it a lot of the kind of uh, sarcasm and 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 kind of joking attitude that was, uh, you know, just you know hilarious to see sometimes. And of course. Uh, Madeleine Albright, who later became the uh, Secretary of State, was of Czech origin, and she was spending time there. And, you know, these people, uh, Václav Havel was inviting people like Frank Zappa to come and be his advisor. He was inviting Lou Reed yeah, to yeah. come to the Prague Castle. And when you well, Lou Reed, Prague I should Castle, say, you know, you know the, the Velvet Underground took their name from the, the Velvet Revolution that Václav Havel... Well, uh, I'm afraid that's that's not true. No, the Velvet oh, no. existed before the Velvet Revolution, but it's a good story. Uh, Don't let the facts get in the way. Oh, this um, is, you, you're 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 <laughs> upending my entire view of of Lou Reed. Yeah, but you see, being at a table with Lou Reed and Václav Havel and Madeleine Albright was really an experience. What was that conversation? Because these people come from very very different worlds. Anyway, so a lot well, of that no, was going no, on. A lot of I, have to, I have to ask about that about that table, though. Wait, so what, what did yeah. Lou Reed like? What, what was his contribution to this conversation, and how did that? Uh, how was that just, put together? He, he, it was in it was in New York. It was in the Village, mm-hmm. and um, and they were you know they were at this event, and Lou Reed had been unbeknownst, I think, to Madeleine Albright, uh, invited, and so they were all sitting at the table and talking about very different things. I think Havel was delighted. And I think Lou Reed that says, who's this lady? And, and Madeline Albright was saying Lou Reed at the same table. So it was worlds colliding. In other words, were you there? And, were, were, um, you in, were you at that table? Mm-hmm. How, mm-hmm. What was your, what was your sort of experience? Do you realize sort of like the, the, the improbability of what was happening at the moment? Uh, yeah, very much so. <laughs> very much so. No, we had other experiences like that because my next assignment after being in Czechoslo- Czechoslovak desk officer was I was assigned to go to Prague. So take, for example, in 1994, Bill Clinton comes to Prague and he um, plays the saxophone, he, right? At, at, at he is a saxophone. So, okay. Now, at this particular event that I didn't attend, that people who were at the event said, now, look, Clinton's coming in and they're going to give him a gift. And it's going to be the Czechs make wonderful musical instruments. Czechs are going to give him a saxophone and uh, he's going to play the saxophone. We don't want any pictures and we don't want any recordings. And everyone nodded. And the the CD with his photo on it hit the streets within 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it was just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, every it was everyone was into this, and of course, Bill Clinton was the kind of guy who really enjoyed that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, I seen I remember and, seeing the photos of it in in Prague, yeah. actually, probably in like right. you know two thousand. Yeah, yeah. So or no, probably not. No, it was early. I was probably like nineteen ninety eight. I was in Prague and, and saw those photos. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So basically, getting back to the world of diplomacy, mm-hmm. what happened was instead of trying to bring down the evil empire and those kinds of things and standing up for human rights it became a process of trying to transform from a dictatorship to a democracy. And that was basically something that took place between the time of, uh, you can say, between 1989 and the time of the accession of all the Eastern European countries to uh, NATO and the EU, mm-hmm. which is about 2004, 2005. There was that, that period of time. And during that time, those of us who were diplomats were trying to figure out how do we you know, to put it poetically, and how do we erase the the line that was drawn by Stalin in Europe? You do it by rule of law, you do it by democracy, by education, by all kinds of things. And it was the kind of diplomatic work that didn't have some of the ambiguity that some of my later work in the diplomatic service had, because it seemed obvious this is what people wanted. 
this is what they were working for, and this is what's gonna gonna happen. Well, and was also yeah. was also like the the idea that that these countries, say like Romania and Hungary, would become part of of NATO, like clear from the outset. No, it wasn't. I mean, part of it was that there were political movements at the time of 1999, which were called Civic Forum or People's Forum. F-O-R-U-M was a, a very fashionable word at that time. And there were people who came from a socialist tradition who were glad not to have the Soviet occupation, but were not especially committed to rampant capitalism either. And they thought there might be a middle way. And so for a number of years, there were people in the countries who said, well, we want to be special. We want to be something between East and West. Very soon, the public attitude caught up with that because these tended to be intellectuals who thought that way. Mm -hmm. And the public mood was, we want to be part of the West. Mm -hmm. And it was quite clear all the way from the Baltics, all the way down to Bulgaria. We want to be part of the West and being part of the West means usually having access to the safety and to the prosperity of the West. And the safety was NATO, and the prosperity was the was the EU. So that gained momentum in the early '90s, and uh, at that throughout the '90s was something that was a big trend. And I was working in that part of the world pretty much through those years. Just pretty much exclusively um, on like NATO accession and and and. Right. I mean, I, I was in I was in Prague until 1995. I was in Bonn uh, from '95 to '97, but I did come back and then run the office. That um, that oversaw the uh, ratification of the NATO first round of NATO enlargement in 1997-98, um, and then went on to work at the White House, uh, both for Bill Clinton and for George Bush. But my time in the White House uh, um, had you know uh, coincided with the 9/11 attack, and anybody who was in the American diplomatic service as well as in the American military can tell you you know that just changed what we did that changed what we focused on. Were you working and, uh, in the White House uh, on, on September 11th? Yeah. What, so I what was, was in the we, old executive office building. Yeah. And uh, I assume you're, you're on the national security staff? That's right. What, what mm -hmm. was your position? Like, what were you doing? I was a director in the European Bureau. So it okay. meant that I was responsible for the countries of Central Europe, basically, between anything between, um, between Russia and France. And you what know, was your what was your experience personally that day working you know in the old executive office building, which for people who don't know is is literally like right next to the White House. It's the big office building right. where the White House staff, because the White House is actually a very small office space, actually you know sits and right. in, in, in works. Yeah. Well, what happened was that um, I actually got a call from our ambassador. I, I was on the phone at, at uh, you know eight thirty in the morning, and I got a call from our ambassador in Warsaw, who said, "Did you see what just happened?" turn on your TV. And uh, so then I turned on my TV after the first plane had hit. And I thought, gosh, that's a terrible accident. And I continued. I was on the phone, I think, to Germany. And I was having a long conversation with someone in the chancellor's office. And then uh, after the second plane hit, uh, the way they evacuate the old executive office building is not like that buzzers go off or anything, but the Secret Service, who are actually uniformed like policemen, yeah. just they run through the building, they grab you and they say, get out. And of course, as a good bureaucrat, I said, yeah, but my safe is unlocked. You know, they said, get out. And so they frog marched us down the stairs and, uh, I, and you know, we all got just thrown out into the street. Um, and uh, it was obviously, as for everyone else, very, very confusing and very difficult. Where, where did you go? Um, what we ended up doing was we were told that, you know, certain people were called into, uh, you know, the, the, the bunker, if you will. Mm -hmm. 
but most people were told, um, take off. Were you in the bunker yeah. or were you taken off? No, no, no. I, did, I didn't qualify for the bunker. <laughs> okay, this sorry. Was, these, 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 were the, these are the real... The, these not, the, not enough these, space these, for the regional directors, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all think of ourselves as being important, but yeah. I'm not important for that. So, yeah. And then for the rest of the, you know, uh, for the rest of the time that I worked in the White House, uh, there were adjustments made, you know, mainly in the area of security. And that began to define, rather than the American mission of being the indispensable nation and trying to end the Balkan Wars and trying to unify Europe we became more and more focused on the task of um, of counterterrorism and the kind of things that we're facing today. Well, I suppose so your career is, is probably, yeah. To, uh, no, no, go yeah, ahead. Sorry, my next assignment yeah. was to go back to Poland, but much more we were talking with the Poles about whether the Poles would fight with us, which they did. I mean, the yeah. Poles were one of four countries who sent combat troops in the actual fighting in, uh, in the uh, Iraq war. Yes, I remember those, the uh, Rumsfeld old versus new Europe. This is right. his formulation, which I, I have to imagine must have complicated your job as well when, when he sort sure. of made that dictum. Yeah. And so it was just a different way of looking at the world. You know, you can use the term paradigm shift or whatever, but it was events changed and the role of a diplomat changes. And, I, you know, I often tell young diplomats, you know, if you are very, very wedded to uh, some kind of advocacy, if you're really, you know, very, very uh, keen on human rights, you're very keen on certain kinds of things. Be very careful about being a diplomat because you're there to do what your government wants you to do. You do it within the contours of what you morally and ethically think is right, but you are taking orders. If you want to be independent, be a journalist. Yeah, right? did, I mean, did you ever sort of feel any any qualms about the the the, the planning of the Iraq War, the execution of of the Iraq War? Um, two things. Um, yes, I knew that my colleagues who knew all about what was happening in that part of the world were uh, writing reports and recommending that this, you know, we should make plans for afterwards and this may not be the smartest thing to do and that we're not convinced that uh, the reasons that we're using for this war work. I knew that was going on. And yet, like most of my colleagues, I was convinced because of the prestige and the uh, the admiration we all had of Colin Powell. Mm-hmm. When he got up and said, this is the truth. I believed it. Yeah. And and so I believed that there really was a mass weapons of mass destruction threat and that it was a serious threat and that it was worth fighting for. It's, it's interesting uh, that someone so deeply inside the bureaucracy, you know, felt that way. I mean, those of us outside as well. I mean, he was the one who convinced most, you know, liberals, most Democrats that it was, you know, that, right. that the, the, the Intel was legit and that we should support this, this, and I, frankly, and I think also Tony Blair, uh, who was beloved by right. liberals and Democrats at the time also supported the war. I think he, he was crucial for swaying mm-hmm. public opinion, but, but it's interesting to hear that people inside the bureaucracy also felt that way. No, he had he had enormous credibility, mm-hmm. and and that and that went a long way towards so, towards uh, convincing us. So mm-hmm. we we worked with the poles, and until two thousand and five, when I left Poland, we were working with them, and you know, still trying to figure out how to win the war, how to fight that threat, etc. The difficulty I ran into then was that I had young officers who were being kind of drafted out of our embassy and being sent to Iraq. And I noticed that the young officers would say, is this a good thing for me to do? And I said, yes, this is what happens in the Foreign Service. You follow orders. That happens. And then I realized very few of the senior people were getting drafted to do that. Hmm. And so I felt uh, just a tad guilty. And I said, if I'm, gonna, if I'm willing to send the junior officers, uh, I'm will- I should be willing to go myself. And so right in 2005, Condi Rice, uh, who was under some pressure from the military, uh, 
asked people to volunteer, senior people to volunteer to man what they called PRTs, provincial mm-hmm. reconstruction teams in Iraq. And the idea here was that people who join the military don't join the military in order to build roads and start up microfinance programs. They're basically soldiers. They want to go fight in a war. And they were being asked to do that because the Americans had made no uh, plans for what happened after 2003. They, um, the, you know, Captain Smith or Major Jones was was supposed to go out and do this. Um, as of 2005, Condi Rice, when she was at this point the Secretary of State, called for people to volunteer, and so I volunteered to go to Iraq in 2005 to to lead a PRT. And I said that they was also right. existed in Afghanistan as as well. Right now, the PRTs in Afghanistan were military led, supported mm-hmm. by civilians. The PRTs in Iraq were civilian led where there was a team of mixed civilian and military people. And so where the did you... The reason that makes a difference. Yeah, sorry, the reason that makes a difference is just that the, the character of, of these kinds of organizations are very different when you have someone leading who is uh, you know, trying to persuade people rather than order them. Um, so That's I was right. the first leader of the first PRT in Iraq, and, and that we, was in Mosul. Okay, so in, in Mosul, obviously the site of, of a big battle as we are, are speaking... Um, what yes. did you uh, encounter and what was your sort of experience in, in Mosul at the time? It was very, very difficult. It was, you know, the way I have described it to some people is kind of like implementing the Marshall Plan in 1943, where basically you're going out and you're taking a team and saying what these people need is good governance and saying, how do you teach good governance? Well, yeah. After Saddam Hussein left, you know, that we had democratic elections, we had people who came into office. But what if you don't know what an agenda is? What if you don't know what minutes are? And I'm not trying to say they're ignorant. It's just that they didn't have the practice of having done this before. And when you're trying to impose a democratic system, it's more than just having people vote. And that was a very difficult uh, process to begin with. It was even more difficult when many people were actually trying to kill you. So, I mean... I have to imagine you put in so much personal effort. I'm sure you saw lots of sacrifice. You may have seen or or experienced colleagues and and, and people you've worked with being been killed over this process. Yet, you know, two years ago, you know, Mosul was was overrun by ISIS. Like, what's going through your mind after you know you, you realize all the effort, energy, and sacrifices you and your team made to secure uh, Mosul, and now it's been overrun? No, it's enormously sad. I mean, it was enormous sadness because the people we worked with were, you know, there was a very strong uh, professional class. I mean, these, this was a country that was very well educated. And, you know, Iraq was not like Afghanistan, where people were living these tribal lives. I mean, people in Iraq lived in big cities like Mosul. So we were working with school teachers. We were working with engineers. We were working with, um, uh, you know, people who were people of goodwill who were not necessarily saying, oh, we love Americans in all ways, but they loved their country and they wanted to work with us to try to build uh, institutions that were legal and functional. And I just have to imagine that those people, uh, when Mosul fell to ISIS, uh, I just hope they got out. Do you have any contacts in there still? I have nobody left in Mosul from those days. No one. Um, When did you uh, become ambassador to Pakistan? Well, after I left Mosul, uh, my reward was that I was made ambassador to Serbia. Uh, So I arrived in Serbia in 2007. And uh, as you may recall, this was when the crisis of the uh, independence of Kosovo 
was coming to a head. And so I got to Serbia in, in summer of 2007. In 2008, uh, Kosovo declared independence. America recognized Kosovo. And so mobs came and burned my embassy down in Belgrade. So you may have remembered watching that. Well, so, so were, you, were you in the embassy at the time? Um, well, tech, no, because what we did is we figured this was happening and we evacuated the embassy. We had everyone leave. We had certain people, our Marine guards there, and we had people um, who were um, uh, destroying the equipment. Because if you've seen the movie Argo, right, yes. you know that what happens in these cases is you, you don't want this material to fall in the hands of a mob. And there's these very technical ways of doing that, which involves swinging sledgehammers and smashing hard drives. So that's, you know, that's what, uh, what our team was doing. Were you literally and out so, there swinging a sledgehammer? Do you have like a, just, I just... actually, I actually swung a sledgehammer. Yeah. And, no, but I mean, the main, the main thing was though, that, that, uh, we were, we were, um, uh, it wasn't like there were a bunch of people in the embassy about to be taken hostage. No, but you and, suspected that it was, that this was going to happen. Right, right. We, we, we had a good inkling that something like this would happen. So all of the, you know, and so we evacuated the women and children. They were off to uh, Zagreb and, uh, you know, the, the families and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I liked, of course, was that when you destroy your communication equipment, you can't send messages back and forth to Washington, which means that when you're ambassador in the country and they can't give you any orders because they can't send you any messages, you're off the leash. And so, so what did you do? February, yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not telling. <laughs> but between February and May, I had a blast. And one of the things that was interesting later was that when WikiLeaks came out, um, all of America's, you know, classified, um, uh, classified information was published on the front page of The Guardian and The New York Times. There's a, an interesting gap between February and May. And uh, in February, um, the... Um, uh, let's put it this way, the, the, the Serbian government looked the other way when the mob attacked our embassy. Mm-hmm. And in May, there was an election and that Serbian government lost. Ah, okay. So we can, so, we can imagine uh, what you were up to in the interim. All the skullduggery I was up to in the meantime, and there's no proof. Anyway, so uh, that, I guess, cemented my uh, reputation. I then volunteered to come back to Baghdad. And in Baghdad, between 2009 and 2010, I was the number two person. I was, uh, worked on military affairs, and then it was the deputy to Ambassador Chris Hill yeah. uh, at the time of the drawdown of troops. And uh, the way I like to think of it is that I was there with people who had you know, long histories of enmity and warring tribes that didn't speak the same language. Uh, and these are like the Defense Department and the State Department. Right? <laughs> yes. And, and so I had to speak military and I had to speak uh, civilian. And yeah, Chris, Chris Hill was on this show talking about that experience as, as well a couple of years ago. Right. Um, right. So, so then, then, then you ended up time, in Pakistan. From that time, yeah. I went to Pakistan, to your original question. 2010, in the summer of 2010, I left Baghdad and went to Pakistan. Um, I obviously Pakistan a hugely important posting. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier. Some of the the sort of emotions that you had to demonstrate in order to get your point across. Um, I'm one of obviously the, like the key things that happened during your tenure was the the Bin Laden raid. I'm yeah. I'm just sort of curious to know if you like how keyed in were you that this was happening as ambassador? Did you know that this was underway, that this was going to be underway? I mean, sort of interested to learn what the communication is between, you know, the military and, and, you know, the, the, the key embassy at the time. 
Well, and let's let's not forget that uh, that in a country like Afghanistan, America has a stationing of forces agreement. So there are people, you know, American troops in that country, just like in Germany or Korea or something. Mm-hmm. We don't have such an agreement with Pakistan. So anybody who was in the military was a diplomat, was a military attaché under my command. Mm-hmm. So that so that the whole operation that took place in in um, in uh, uh, Pakistan was yeah. was CIA. It was intelligence. It wasn't military. But as and head of the embassy, books, aren't you right. also sort of in charge of, of you, know, you know, the CIA yes. as well? Yeah. Yes. And so the answer to your question without going deeply into this is, yes, I knew it was going to happen. I knew I knew about the intelligence long before the event. Okay. But did yeah. you know sort of more proximate sort of when and the, the timing that it was going to happen? Or was it more that you were? No, we, mm-hmm. I, I knew, I knew about the planning and I mm-hmm. knew about what was going on. Yeah. And what was now, your. No, that's mm-hmm. not something that I shared with, with other people, but yes. Of course, yeah. I, I knew. As and what was your, mission, your, your initial you're, you're the response? Person who's, yeah. you're, you're the person who is the president's representative in the country. You've got to know these things. And so what was your first sort of your first call after that? Well, I, I actually watched the raid on the screen at the embassy um, and then, uh, you know, was on interaction throughout. And uh, my job was to say, you know, how are you going to deal with the Pakistanis? How are you going to make sure two things, that the Americans who live in the country are safe and that you manage or do your best to manage the response by the Pakistanis? We had all of the Americans um, who were official Americans, that is to say, people who worked at the embassy, people who worked in libraries, people who were students, everyone in the embassy compound. Uh, you know, the, the, the raid took place at zero dark 30, that is at 1230, and it was over by two or three. We had everyone in by six in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, when you serve in a country like that, you pretty much have a suitcase packed by your door just in case something happens. So we called everyone in. So there was no response. There was no riot. There were no people coming with torches and pitchforks or anything like that. Um, My job was to talk with the Pakistani officials. And um, even though many people find this hard to believe, I, to this day, don't believe that the Pakistanis knew that bin Laden was there. Hmm. Um, There was no evidence of it. As you know, from the stories that have been written about this, there was an enormous amount of intel that was taken out of the house in Abbottabad when they they killed uh, bin Laden. Uh, to my knowledge, none of the intel they took had a smoking gun, had a, evidence mm-hmm. that the um, intelligence or the military in Pakistan knew he was there. Um, mm-hmm. That was counterintuitive. This was a mile away from their version of West Point. And so people thought, how could this be? And I remember Newt Gingrich being on TV saying, how stupid do you think we are? Of course you knew. There simply is. The sad part is there's no evidence of it. And you may have heard of the, the articles written by Seymour Hersh uh, in the London Review of Books and all this claiming enormous conspiracies where the Americans worked with the Pakistanis to kill bin Laden. Uh, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. And it's sad to see someone of the caliber and fame of Seymour Hersh write that kind of stuff. But there is um, – no, they, they uh, basically were stunned by it. And uh, after a few days of being stunned and trying to figure out how to spin what had been very humiliating for them, um, they turned around and said, you have violated our, our airspace and we need apologies, and et cetera. I mean, they, they, they were uh, furious with us. And we had had in Pakistan an incident a few months before that called the Raymond Davis yeah. case, 
where a CIA uh, contractor had shot two street thugs uh, in in Lahore. And uh, to make a very long story very short, you know, we got him out of now jail. You speared him out, right, of the country? We speared yeah. him out of the country, uh, but it was very tense, and a lot of people were very angry about it. And so the efforts that we were making to try to work with Pakistan in the war on terror, were, let's put it mildly, they were set back by that. They were set back further by the bin Laden raid, and then even more by a raid that took place that fall called the Salala Incident, where a number of American special ops and Afghan special ops came in erroneously across the border, thought they were being fired on in Afghanistan, and they were being fired upon in Pakistan by Pakistani troops, and they wiped them out. They killed them. So... Uh, yeah, like like 40 or so Pakistani troops were killed in this attack, yeah. something like that? Yes, a, num a number, I believe the number was 24, but it was mm -hmm. a significant number mm -hmm. of troops. And uh, so uh, the uh, Pakistanis called on the Americans to apologize. The Americans didn't apologize. And well, so by the Americans, they mean you, right? I mean, like, are you're supposed to be the well, one saying you're sorry? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I actually did say that. I mean, I, I went out and said on TV, I, you know, I think this is a terrible tragedy and we very much regret, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, Washington didn't. There were a number of arguments about that, why that was the case. What, what did um, you think the, the response should have been? The response should have, should have been that we should have said, we are terribly sorry. We have made a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and I made that point to Washington, and I was not able to convince Washington of that. It took us seven months to apologize, and in the meantime, the Pakistanis, in retaliation, shut down the supply routes from Karachi to um, where, where all the equipment going to Afghanistan for the war. They shut down the supply routes, so it was not only a question to me of being kind of making a mistake, but it was also a question that was very, very expensive for us because we had to fly all of our things, all of our our equipment to Pakistan for uh, through to Afghanistan for seven months. Um, we, so that was a yeah. very tough mm -hmm. year. I just wanted to pass on. It was kind of like rolling down the side of a hill with a lot of rocks and cactuses. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and this is how much you know how much fun you can have in the diplomatic service. <laughs> and and so this was your la your your last diplomatic posting, right? That's right. In 2012, I, I, uh, I retired from the diplomatic service, and I went out to the West Coast. Well, first, I had a. I was very lucky to teach for a semester in uh, at Columbia University Law School, and then to go out to the West Coast and teach at Pomona College in courses on um, on uh, diplomacy and the art, I guess, or the science of diplomacy. You, you didn't teach about in, German economic history. No, they didn't uh, want to hear about that anymore. Shocking. No, and 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 what the what the idea was is that I was a professor of practice in the sense that I was not an academically tenured professor. I was someone who had a different kind of experience. So that after taking seven semesters of political science theory, they could actually talk to the guy who said, "This is what happens when you're out in the field, um, and uh, and you have to do what a diplomat does." And I like to think that's a nice. A measure of uh, balance for people going out into the real world after studying international relations. And then finally, I had the opportunity when the job came open at the East-West Institute here in New York uh, to come and not only just uh, teach about it, but uh, we do conflict prevention around the world, places like China, Middle East, Russia, Europe. And we talk to people and try to anticipate problems and, and deal with them before they become 
before they become crisis. And so I'm back in the world of doing the kind of things that diplomats like to do, and yet I don't have to do it for the U.S. government anymore. I can do it for right. a private NGO. And any project in particular that you're working on now or in the future that we should be well, aware of at UWI? Sure. Basically, what we do is two types of things. One is kind of above the waterline, and one's below the waterline, the way we look at it. We have things above the waterline in the area of, say, cybersecurity, where we convene people and say there are no real rules about certain elements of cybersecurity. How do we get the Russians, the Americans, the Chinese, the Indians, everyone else to come together and to find common ground? And so that's very done very publicly, and we try to do this to say what is the result of, of talking and building trust so that people can maybe avoid cybersecurity crises. Another example of our above-the-waterline work would be we have uh, a lot of Chinese uh, ties at very high levels where we bring people together to talk quietly, but we don't make any secret about it. We go out and we talk with people about what do Americans and Chinese agree or disagree on. Um, we do other quiet things that I have to be a little more elliptical about. Um, we have uh, talks that we uh, sponsor quietly and anonymously between, say, antagonists in the Middle East or different kinds of countries where there are issues that they just simply don't agree on. We find we bring them together and we are basically a privately funded organization. So we don't have government money. We're not doing it on behalf of anyone else. And so we get them so they'll talk quietly to try to find common ground, to try to see here is a problem. How do we deal with it? We do a lot of that in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, we are engaged in places like Turkey, places like Lebanon, uh, in the Gulf. We uh, try to work with the Iranians. We try to work with um, you know other countries. We traditionally, East-West has also worked in the Balkans. That's fallen away, but you know who knows? There's a new Europe, and it may need we may be more busy in the future. So the, the, to sum it up, what we do is we do the kind of work of diplomacy, not so much reacting to events, not so much saying, here is Russia and uh, Ukraine and who's right and who's wrong. We try not to be judgmental. We try to bring people together who may disagree with each other and find out, is there common ground and can we avoid conflict? And um, it's a, one of those things proving a... Um, proving a, 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 a negative, it's very difficult to measure uh, in many cases our success. But we believe that enough people know about what we do and care about what we do, that we have the trust of different people to uh, try to prevent real bad conflicts in the world. Well, so uh, I'm delighted after a career in diplomacy to be able to do this. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. All right. Thank you all for listening. As promised, great episode. Loved this conversation. And thank you for suggesting that I reach out to Ambassador Munter. This episode came because you suggested I speak with him. And it turns out you, yes, you listening, are a good barometer of interesting people whom I should interview. Please do support the Patreon campaign we have going, and you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the support the show link, or go straight to patreon.com slash globaldispatches to check out the rewards you can earn for being an ongoing, sustaining member of this podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and we'll see you later. Bye.